Welcome to episode 6 of Flying Podcast. I've been really busy over the summer so I haven't had the chance to put out any podcasts but now I've got a little more time uh, I've got plans to record many more so keep listening. Today I've got an interesting interview with John Seville. John flies a Cessna 172 out of Barton. He's had an interesting flying career having been the eye in the sky for Piccadilly Radio in Manchester flying around the area giving traffic updates live on air. Uh, he's since been involved in aerial photography, carrying photographers around the country. Sounds pretty much like the ideal job to me. Anyway, let's hear John's story. Uh, good evening. Uh, this evening I'm with uh, John Seville. Good evening, John. Good evening. Uh, could you tell me what you do in the field of aviation? Well, these days, uh, only one thing really, that's fly aerial photographers, obviously for the purposes of aerial photography, and uh, that can cover uh, almost anywhere in the country. And um, basically, that's it. That's the main thing that I do using a Cessna 172 single engine, of course. Based out of? Based at um, uh, what was Barton Airfield, Manchester. Now they call it what? The City of Manchester Airport? City Airport, Manchester. City Airport, Manchester, that's it. Very yeah. grand. Yeah, it's still Barton to me because I've yeah. been going a very long time. Right, me too. Um, so you don't actually do the aerial photography yourself, you just you are hired by aerial photographers? By aerial photographers, yes. I, it's, um, I, know them, I know them all personally, yeah. and um, so it's, it's a team effort, mm -hmm. and um, there never seems to be any shortage of work. The only thing that um, holds things back is the weather, especially yeah. this particular summer, you know, the summer of 2008, 2007, was the worst one I'd ever known, but this one's been even, even worse. worse. Yeah. So um, it's a case of doing what you can when you can, and that includes, when necessary, it, it, working on a weekend if if uh, you're not able to get jobs done in a week because of the weather, mm -hmm. and it happens to be sunny on either Saturday or Sunday. You've just got to do it and get it done. Yeah. Otherwise, the 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 queue of uh, work waiting to be done just gets longer and longer. Yeah, and it has to be not only just. Um, VFR, but very clear as well? Well, yeah. It depends what you're doing. If you're doing a factory, as far as visibility is concerned, obviously the better it is, the better, the sharper the pictures mm -hmm. are. But if you're just doing, say, a factory and its grounds, and you're looking down fairly steeply, obliquely, um, none, none of this is vertical photography. It's all done out of the open window on the mm -hmm. left-hand side where the photographer sits. I've, I've always, always fly from the right-hand seat. Um, so if you're looking down at a small target, shall we say, a factory, and you're looking down steeply, then the visibility, if it's a bit hazy, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. But, I mean, a lot of the shots, the customers want to see if there's a motorway nearby. They want to see their factory and the motorway in relation. Yeah. And if it's hazy or, or it's towards the sun, then it presents problems. Yeah. So yeah. there's all sorts of... And different photographers, depending... Most photographers now use digital cameras, whereas it was all film at one time, but there were still a few people left, a few photographers left um, doing um, uh, photography on film. Mm -hmm. And the weather is more critical with film, that it's got to be better. With digital, even if it's a bit dull, afterwards they can put those pictures on the computer, the photographer that is, and lighten them a bit or darken them yeah. a bit. As they want the, you, know, you can't... You can't uh, eradicate the, ha the haze 
but at least you can you can improve the contrast on a computer. Now with film, that can only be done by the film processor. Mm -hmm. But then again, he needs to know what you want. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's lots of in and ins and outs, and all the photographers operate in in different ways. I know that such a photographer will put up with some cloud, uh, maybe maybe total cloud, as long as it's not too dark or pouring yeah. with rain. Um, well, sometimes they prefer a complete overcast. Some, just like some a prefer a complete light. overcast. Other photographers, they will only do it if the sky is almost wide open, mm -hmm. without any cloud at all. But on the other hand, if it's, say, half cloud and half um, blue sky, that on its own presents problems because if you're doing big sites, the last thing you want is half the site in cloud and half in sunshine. That mm -hmm. is terrible because right? all it does, it makes the, the, the part of the site that's under cloud appear even blacker. Um, the camera tends to go exposed for mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the brighter part where the yeah. sun is on. Yeah. That applies to digital as well. So all different photographers have got different ideas and some will... will will go off and be happy to do photography on days that others would not. Mm -hmm. So it's a constant juggling. Um, for instance, if um, such a photographer rings, and I know that I'm supposed to do some work for somebody else, but I think, well, it's, 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 not, it's not bright enough for them, but the other photographer is happy to go, so it just gets juggled. Yep. So it's, a minute, it's almost a minute by a minute. Uh, no, day, no day, you can never plan a day until they see what the weather's like. And even then, depending where you want to go, it um, depends on which photographer is actually doing the work. So quite a varied job you've got there. Well, yeah, it's very varied. It's very, nothing, nothing is ever, no two days are ever the same. What sort of tasks would you be asked to do? All sorts. You mentioned factories. Factories, roads, new, if, uh, roads, you know, new roads that are being constructed. Um, plots of land that are going to be developed. Sometimes there might be a, 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 a boundary dis dispute. Mm -hmm. Sometimes jobs come from solicitors who are acting for a client and they need aerial photography to sort of try and determine boundaries. So that sort of thing. One once was a funeral, which was... Um, it, that came as a surprise. And um, I asked the photographer, I said... I said a funeral. Why? Why? Why a funeral? <laughs> My question, and he, yeah. he didn't. He didn't know a great deal about it, except that we had to be over a certain church. I think it was Middlewich, at a certain time, because the the service was starting at eleven. They were supposed to be out by twelve o'clock, and then they were going by road to somewhere near Sandbach for the burial. So we arrived over the church maybe about quarter to twelve, thinking they'd be out at twelve o'clock, and there were. At half past twelve, they still hadn't come out, and uh, all around the church there were thirteen stretched limos waiting for the people to come out of the church. The hearse in front. There was uh, around the side streets. It was absolutely crammed with car parked cars. There was a, a an open back um, lorry, absolutely full of flowers. So was, one was wondering, what, what is it? Who, who is this person who's died? Yeah. Do we find out? We did eventually. Eventually, they eventually came out. The photographer was getting very nervous because he'd given a fixed price for the job. They were supposed to come out at twelve, just down the road, follow them down the road, take a few shots when they got to the cemetery, and then that would be it. And uh, he was getting worried because he'd given a fixed price. But I said, "Well, who are you dealing with?" He said, "The funeral director." I said, "Well, the funeral director 
is, will be down there, so he will know that it's all delayed. Anyway, it turned out, they all eventually came out of the church, they piled in these limos. They had a police motorbike escort the 10 miles or so, going towards, I think it was somewhere near Sandbach. At the end of the day, it turned out to be a gypsy. 27-year-old gypsy. I think sometimes they, they, they have a title like prince or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he'd blown himself up in a caravan um, with, you know, with the the gas, the yeah. uh, Cali gas. Yeah, yeah. And so he died at the age of 27, being blown up in, in a caravan. So that's what it was all about. Why did he want an aerial photo of the... Just for posterity? Don't know. But <laughs> it was as if no expense spared sort of thing. Yeah. This... this um, and, and again, they even had this uh, police escort, the court, you know, going from the church where the service was down to um, somewhere near Sandbach. Did we get called on to do any sort of aerial archaeology? Yes, yes. At one time, uh, I used to know a Professor Barry Jones from Manchester University, and um, he, he died a few years ago, but um, he, he, he was very, very well known in the archaeological world, and he, he, he's written quite a few books. And it, usually it was from May to May to say the end of September. He would often want to fly in the evening, an hour or so before darkness, uh, when the sun's getting lower. And the, the, the lower the sun gets in the sky, the more mm -hmm. it shows up the relief. And, and he actually discovered um, sites that weren't known about up in these Saddleworth Hills, for instance, yeah. um, on, on one or two of the, uh, the trips we made. So we used to go um, within about. 30 miles of Manchester and quite a number quite a number of trips and he would take his own photos but we used to take along also uh, an experienced aerial photographer but uh, archaeology it, it, again it, it, you can see things in the in the in the late evening or a couple of hours before the sun goes down completely that you would not see in in at midday mm -hmm. and once I had to do a job of um, it was a golf course the one at Prestwich, I, was, I just forget its name, and um, the head groundsman had left, and uh, and uh, uh, whether he took the plans with him or not, I don't know. But they, they didn't know where the drains were, and they want they wanted an aerial picture to see if it would show up. Yeah. As it happened, when that particular job was done, it was done at about half past nine one, winter's morning, and there'd been a light frost overnight, and they showed up. Effect. You know the, yeah. where the, where the yeah. pipes were underground, the drain, the drains underground. So that's another unusual one. You mentioned one of the obstacles to the flying is the weather, which is obvious. Are yeah. there any other things that sort of uh, get in your way? Like air traffic control, for example. Well, I've always gone on very well with the, uh, with with most with most air traffic controls. Sometimes you get an outside uh, out. Um, what's the word? Uh, an outright refusal. Um, but I mean Manchester uh, Airport. They've I've dealt with them for at least twenty five years. Now it doesn't mean to say that I can just I've got, I've always got to ring them up before going mm -hmm. and uh, just to square it up with them. But I mean obviously I know they're not going to divert, divert airliners for us. So it's a case of working with them. And in fact Manchester in particular I've always found very very good. And also Liverpool. Mm -hmm. Liverpool air traffic are very good. If they can possibly fit you in, they do. If there's something going on, uh, you know, if, if, if the ILS is being checked, which is done on a routine, a regular basis, 
obviously there's certain things you can't do because um, you, you know you can't be in the way of that going on and sometimes they're so busy that they just have to say no uh, at the time I um, uh, uh, ring them up but they might suggest trying again in a couple of hours and so on yeah. which is always a bit of a nuisance because you've got to hang about then uh, or if you can go and do something else until that time but uh, I've always got to call them from the ground right. and you, on a typical day would you let's say get one project and someone come along and say I need to photograph something in the Midlands or do you get you know, nine or ten different things you try and get in on a day as, uh, as, as best as possible, as many, it's, it's most economical for the photographer to do as many sites, as many jobs as he can. Sure. A, a recent one, about, uh, about a month ago, we did, um, we did a, I think it was eight, eight hours and 20 minute day, we did. And that started off, the, the jobs there started off the, uh, near Birmingham, uh, down in the Benson area, Bedford. Um, or oh, Cambridge, and then we then the next batch of jobs were in the Thames area down near um, oh, I forgot the name of it um, Tilbury, and one inside of the London City zone, mm -hmm. which we managed to get done even though it was a weekday, um, and then we went for fuel we refueled at Rochester, favourite watering hole down that way, because it's always quick it can be quick in and out, and then we set up again. Um, some more work around Tilbury, then Basildon, Southend, Ipswich, Chelmsford, <laughs> finishing up at Lowestoft because by then it was getting on for after six in the evening, and of course we had the long trip back to Barton to do. Yeah. And so that particular day we did, I think it was eight and a half, eight, eight, eight hours and twenty minutes with the one refueling. Um, so I mean. Again, for the photographer, the more sites he can do on one trip, the more economical. More cost-effective. Cost I mean, if someone says, oh, we want a job doing in Bedford, and if you've got to go to Bedford and back to do just that one job, then it, then the price would be more often than not prohibitive to the customer. Mm -hmm. But if there's, say, four or five jobs to do on the way, and maybe on the way back, around Robin, as it were, then, then the price for that job in Bedford, in that case... Uh, would be a lot cheaper than it would doing it as a single job. Yeah, and I, I guess at the moment fuel prices are something fairly high up your uh, well, list of complaints. Well, this is it. Uh, I mean, this year, um, what I think Avgas has gone up by about fifty percent, hasn't it? Yeah. Since the beginning of the year. Yeah. So it makes you wonder. How uh, much do you pay a gallon? Uh, a gallon, including the vat, now is about. Uh, I think it's about eight pound fifty. Shocking. It's almost. It's. I mean, once upon a time, Avgas used to be, uh, on average, fifty pence a gallon dearer than car than uh, than the car fuel. Yeah. Uh, it, the, it stayed like that for for many many years. The difference was Avgas was fifty pence a gallon dearer than car fuel. Now it's what it's it's four pounds a gallon dearer. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think in terms of gallons, so it's it's absolutely ridiculous. I think it, it will stop the job eventually. Yeah, you know at this rate. Uh, I mean, obviously, the most of the money in that eight fifty for Avgas is tax. Yeah. So it's um, you know the law of negative returns will set in before long. Uh, just going back a few years, how did you get into aerial photography? Into aerial photography, um, I I did my CPL 
to, at Oxford for the for the ground school, and then the rest of it, um, starting in 1978, <coughs> and then later the instrument rating, um, and then uh, the the. F the first work I did was air taxi and air charter work. I started with the firm at Liverpool, Keen Air. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they're there now. Find their Aztecs and their um, and the Navajo. I think there were two Navajos, and that was um, very very good, really. When you plunge in at the deep end, and um, and uh, all over the country, and then, and then going to Belgium, Germany. Mm -hmm. France, of course, and various other places. Once went, twice went to Italy with with a Navajo party of uh, nine each time. So you, I mean, and it's single crew; it's all single crew. So you you, you really plunge in at the deep end. And um, also, I once upon a time for there was it used to be a firm at Manchester Airport called Grosvenor, and I used to fly their Navajos, Navajo chieftains. I had two uh, on mail trips between um, Manchester, East Midlands, Belfast, and back to Manchester. Um, oh, and eventually, um, it got the... After about after three or four years, I, I started to get a bit fed up with the charter work, the daytime charter work, in that you could be setting off, leaving Liverpool or Manchester or, or Blackpool at maybe seven or eight in the morning, you get to your destination, then you've got to wait about all day for the passengers to come back, and then it's a mad dash. I'm going to get back, you know, it's a mad dash to get back. And you, you can do a 16-hour day, and maybe only a couple of hours flying on some of those days. Mm -hmm. And eventually I got a bit fed up of that. In the meantime, I'd been doing a little bit of aerial photography, and uh, I can't quite remember how it happened, really, but... It got to the point where I was doing, at one stage I was doing aerial photography and charter work, and and then eventually I finished up just doing aerial photography. When was it that you started the aerial photography? How many years ago? Um, I think I, I started it more or less full-time in 90, about 1985. Right. But I'd done a lot of aerial photography before that. Mm -hmm. um, when I say a lot, I'd done some sorry, some aerial photography before that with different photographers and I just sort of slipped into doing it full time from about 1985 onwards but at the same time I, I was still doing some charter work in fact I used to do the night mail to Belfast for a couple of years yeah. I to Manchester with the Navajo, Navajo chieftain uh, for Grosvenor at Manchester Airport which meant taking off about 10 o'clock in the evening arrive at East Midlands about half past 10 get uh, work out um, how much fuel was needed to be taken on, um, and and wait until the um, the uh, the mail was loaded, which would be about midnight by the time all that's done. Mm. The idea was to take enough fuel for the trip and the contingencies and so on, and whether or not there's going to be a headwind and so on, which meant that rather than go full um, by by working it out, it meant you could take you carry maximum mail rather yep. than just fuel. Yep. Uh, so I, did, I was doing that, um, and, and sometimes a bit of aerial photography during the day. <laughs> but, the, but the night flying, I used to enjoy the night flying. Yeah. Um, nice and quiet. He's quiet on the airways, <laughs> and uh, it was all IFR. Yeah. And, and, and there's something special about night, especially a, moon, a moonlit night. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that side of it I miss. But the normal routine 
charter work whereby again 16 hour day maybe often uh, and only a couple of hours flying uh, you know maybe two or three hours yep. and uh, you finish up feeling tired having done not very much yep. uh, you started the aerial photography in 85 but uh, you haven't done that exclusively since you've flirted with celebrity you were you were the eye in the sky for Piccadilly Radio and Key 103? For Piccadilly Radio and Key 103, yeah, for the best part of seven years. But it, wasn't a, it was not a job I'd applied for. It, it, it happened literally by accident. The chap who, uh, at Barton, who used to do the banner telling, he'd got the, the initial contract when they first started it. But he was tragically killed on the airfield in 1986, uh, and that was due to an accident whilst he was uh, banner towing. Um, Piccadilly Radio then came to me because I'd been doing, I'd been helping... Uh, that particular pilot to ferry the aeroplane backwards and forwards between Manchester Airport and Barton and I started doing it on alternate days until the accident and then Piccadilly Radio came to me and asked me if I would carry it on Well, it's, and uh, at first I wasn't in a position to um, carry the presenter because the CAA told me that I must have an AOC, that's the Air Operating Certificate even though the presenter is travelling not as a fair-paying passenger. And Piccadilly Radio, <coughs> excuse me, um, sort of slid me into it, and really, if I'd known what I was going to be doing uh, a week or so prior to that, I would have run a mile. But anyway, it all worked out okay. And um, for the rest of the seven years, I, um, I did the eye in the sky on my own, making up the commentary as I went along, and then feeding the... the um, reports to the radio stations, both both channels, Piccadilly Radio and Key 103, and it just went on for seven years. Seven years passed very quickly, and I think in that time I did um, about 2,100 flights for them. Wow. You were flying from Manchester to start with? <clears throat> Initially, for the first three years, I was flying out to Manchester Airport, but it was becoming more and more difficult as the, the number of passengers going through Manchester Airport increased... And I felt that it would be, uh, I might be in the way sometimes. It was getting more and more difficult to get on the runway in time in the morning. It was ready for the radio station. The, the, the programme started at 8 o'clock and uh, it was difficult sometimes getting airborne in time. So I moved across to Barton and for the next three and a half years it went like clockwork out of Barton. So it was, and it was very good. Right, and you had sort of carte blanche to fly anywhere in Manchester's... Uh... I had an, uh, an agreement with Manchester Air Traffic Control that um, uh, I could more or less go anywhere I wanted except not closer than five miles to the airport, to Manchester Airport, that is. So I, and, and they trusted me and they, they had me on radar with the squawk, the transponder and all the rest of it. And I just made sure I didn't get any closer than five miles, which meant, of course, I couldn't go over Stockport. But uh, otherwise... Um, it um, it worked out very well, and they just used to lead me to it. Um, and then I'd get back about 9 o'clock, um, have the usual cup of tea and so on and so on, and then go off, if the weather was good, I'd go off doing aerial photography during the day. So it was a, it was a very good job, steady job, and finished by 9 o'clock in the morning, unless something special had happened, a big crash on the motorway maybe, and they'd ask me to stay airborne longer and go out and have a look at it, maybe the M6 or whatever. Right. I remember you used to take um, members of the public up as well, didn't you? All the time, yeah, all the time. They used to like, enter some sort of competition and, uh, and the then prize was go around with the eye in the sky. That's right. Piccadilly would send me a list every, I think it was every week or, or every couple of weeks, and all the names would be on. And um, 
these people would contact me, said the night before, to see if it was uh, it, it was going to be on. Yeah. Uh, and, in f and, and usually it was. In fact, the last year that I did the Eye in the Sky, I missed only one day out of the whole year, and that was due to high winds wow. on a February morning. Um, and uh, airplanes were being blown about at Barton at that time. So I, on the last year, I, did, I missed only one day in the whole year. Um, bearing in mind it was done Monday to Friday, not weekends. So, um, so it was enjoyable. There was, you know, many funny experiences and so on. And the members of the public came along, and most of them liked it. One or two got sick, but fortunately, I, fortunately, I had a good supply of um, um, sick bags. So, um, you sponsored by Delta, and they supplied the last. Well, they were sponsored by Logan Air at, at the beginning. I think when I started doing it, it was sponsored by Logan Air, and they they would want the aeroplane painted like uh, the Logan Air. Um, um, livery and so on, so yeah. all that did, I mean that airplane got, was repainted about four times yeah. during um, the Eye in the Sky and then it was sponsored by a big motor firm in Salford, I forget the name of it uh, and lastly, um, whilst I was doing the Eye in the Sky, the uh, long-term sponsor was Delta Airlines of Manchester uh, sorry, the American Airline mm -hmm. operating out of Manchester Airport yeah. And, uh, and the livery of the 172, it was by then, my, my own Cessna 172, was changed again for Delta. Okay, and that lasted seven years you were eyeing the sky? Seven, uh, yes, um, very close on seven years. And from the early 90s then you've been just concentrating on the... Uh... Since the, from the early 90s, just purely um, aerial photography. And there's always been a lot of work to do, always. I don't mean that you're working seven days a week or even five days a week every week, although some weeks it would be, but it was entirely down to the weather. You might do two or three days one week and not do anything for the next week or so. Uh, but on other times, if, if the weather was settled, you could be flying every single day. And, uh, I remember doing 65 hours in one week, all t you know, altogether, on aerial photography. I was quite glad when it rained, actually. <laughs> <laughs> one thing's always... Um I wouldn't wondered about for someone like yourself is, do you ever not find something that you're going to photograph? Yes. <laughs> yes, because uh, it all depends on the... I try to get as much information as possible from the photographer. Mm -hmm. And um, and ideally, grid reference points, using, using GPS now as I do to locate places which can be uh, just a factory in a large town or city. Yeah. And... Um, if they can supply grid reference, all the better. If if they can't, sometimes I'll work one out before we go. Although I prefer them to supply me with the grid reference because I don't like to be doing that whilst the sun's beating down when we really ought to be airborne and yeah. getting on with it. Yeah. So um, how do you find? Once sometimes a photographer will say, "Oh, I know, I, I know where it is. You've been before." as well and I say well maybe but I can't remember because I go to so many places but I seem to be quite happy that they'll be able to find it when we get there and quite quite a few times they've not been able to find it and we've had to abandon it and get better information and come back another time I mean there was one particular ph photographer once we were working in uh, to the west of the Pennines and uh, this photographer said um, oh the next, next one's in uh, York so I thought, okay, and we, so we set off, and of course I've got to talk to the military and so on as we're going towards York. And I said, excuse me, what, 
or part of York. And I looked at the, the map that the photographer had, and it wasn't York at all. It was Yorkshire. But it was a place 20 miles north of York. Yeah. And then I had to then renegotiate with the uh, military traffic controllers I'd been talking to them and feeling embarrassed about it. And then find this, uh, the proper location. The, the photographer had said York, whereas they should have said Yorkshire. Uh -huh. Because I would immediately have said, well, it's a big county. <laughs> Yeah. Lots to aim at there, isn't there? Yes. So, um, but often, with GPS has been a tremendous um, um, breakthrough as far, and especially for aerial photography. Uh, when I know that we've, we're setting off on a day and do multiple sites, sometimes as many as 15 and 16, it's always it's nice to have them in the GPS. Obviously, you can't find a straight line all the time from one job to the other, mm -hmm. but at least you know which zones to skirt around, who to speak to, and so on and so on. Yeah. Sometimes you can go in a straight line, but all, altogether GPS has made it much, much easier. And does the GPS ever disappear? I sometimes hear people say the signal just drops That's out. That's right. It does occasionally, not very often. I mean, there are um, published jamming trials yeah. which are carried out, so you, you know to expect it sometimes. Other times it can just go off for no apparent reason. Often it will come back on within a few minutes, um, but by you know by and by and large the GPS is an absolute boon. Yeah. It is to all aviators, of course, but but especially so I would say for aerial photographers, finding places out in out in the middle of Wales somewhere or halfway up a hill, no roads nearby, and so on and so on. It's it's absolutely marvellous. Okay, uh, and the last question, John, is. Uh, <laughs> Is there a future in aerial photography? Well, <coughs> the, there's so much building going on. I mean, the, the present situation, of course, with the so-called um, credit crunch, I think it, it's going to slow down a little as building construction sites are being cancelled or mm -hmm. put on hold. But, but there's such a variety of aerial photography work that is required that um, it, it, it certainly hasn't affected me as yet. Um, bearing in mind that the, 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 there are a few different photographers that fly and they, they all get their own work together and all in all the, the biggest um, um, bugbear to getting it done is purely the weather, especially this year, 2008. Very bad year for weather-wise. OK, well, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much, John. Well, thank you. Thank you. I hope you find it uh, interesting. Sure we will. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. So that's it for another episode. If you have any suggestions for subjects or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, please feel free to drop me a line. You can contact me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk That's steve at flyingpodcast, all one word, .co.uk Thanks for listening and I look forward to hearing from you and I'll speak to you again soon.